This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome to the Diabetes Knowledge and Practice Podcast, your bi-weekly source of news, views, and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk, who has had no influence on the content or choice of faculty. Once again, I'm James Bannister. And I'm Emma Phillips. Today, we're exploring normalization of body weight and evidence-based approaches to helping patients with type 2 diabetes achieve their targets. As always, we'll begin by summarising the literature on this topic and then move on to our expert interview. This week, we'll be speaking to Professor Carol LaRue, consultant in metabolic medicine at Imperial College London and chair of experimental pathology at University College Dublin. If you're already familiar with weight loss strategies, do feel free to skip ahead to the expert interview. And remember, links to all the references we discuss in this session are available in the episode notes. Type 2 diabetes is closely linked to obesity, with both conditions commonly co-occurring together. Similarly, reductions in body weight have been shown to reduce the risk of developing type 2 diabetes and, in some cases, lead to remission, defined as returning to normal glycemia without medication. So while the obvious advice is for people with type 2 diabetes to normalize their body weight, this can sound simple in theory, but it's much easier said than done. Obesity is a multifaceted disease driven by genetics, hormones, appetite, and environmental factors. And as such, it can be difficult for a lot of people to achieve sustained weight loss, particularly if they're attempting to do so through lifestyle intervention alone. Beyond this, some pharmacological and surgical options are available. But what is the evidence to support each approach? Let's start with lifestyle interventions. These are recommended as the backbone of treatment for all people with type 2 diabetes and play a fundamental role in disease management. In fact, the direct trial showed that intensive weight management without antihypoglycemic medication in people with type 2 diabetes led to almost half of the participants achieving remission after a year, and a third was still in remission after two years. The trial also found that the rate of remission increased with the amount of weight lost. The ADA recommends in its 2019 guideline that lifestyle intervention programmes should be intensive with frequent follow-up to achieve significant reductions in excess body weight and improve clinical indicators. Interventions include physical exercise and eating plans such as very low-calorie, Mediterranean-style and low-carbohydrate programmes. But there's no consensus on which of these programmes can be considered the best. For example, the DietFits trial, which compared weight change in non-diabetic people who were randomised to either a low-fat or low-carbohydrate diet, found no significant difference between the groups at 12 months. A meta-analysis of weight loss intervention outcomes, published in 2015 by Marion Franz and colleagues, found that the majority of interventions resulted in weight loss of less than 5% body mass, with no benefit seen in metabolic outcomes. Conversely, the two studies included their analysis, reporting weight loss of at least 5%, also reported improvements in HbA1c, lipids, and blood pressure. These were a Mediterranean-style diet in people newly diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, and the Look Ahead trial, which implemented intensive lifestyle intervention, including calorie restriction. Both included physical activity, along with frequent contact time with healthcare professionals. Franz and colleagues' analysis concluded that weight loss of at least 5% is necessary for improvements in HbA1c, lipids, and blood pressure, and that strategies need to include energy restriction, physical activity, and frequent contact with healthcare professionals. While implementing a weight loss program through diet and exercise can sound simple in theory, there are many barriers and socioeconomic factors that can interfere with this. A 2016 review by Sarah Kelly and colleagues 
describes the barriers to uptake of healthy behaviors in people at midlife, including lack of time due to family and work-related responsibilities, access to facilities and resources, and low socioeconomic status. In real life, this can mean things like the costs of healthier foods and time required for cooking versus the convenience of processed foods and working hours combined with family commitments that don't allow time for exercise. Therefore, patients and clinicians alike should be reminded that the failure of lifestyle interventions to adequately control weight should in no way be perceived as a failure of the patient. So, what options are available beyond lifestyle intervention? For pharmacological intervention, there are specific agents that have demonstrated weight loss benefits, as well as some classes of anti-diabetic agents. Both SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists are associated with weight loss, so strategic selection of these agents may assist patients in achieving their weight goals. In addition, a more concentrated formulation of the GLP-1 receptor agonist liraglutide is authorised by the EMA and FDA for the treatment of obesity. Beyond these, ADA and EASD guidelines also mention additional therapies such as Orlistat, a lipase inhibitor that limits fat absorption in the gut and appears to benefit people with type 2 diabetes as shown in small-scale studies. However, the guidelines also note that these specific anti-obesity therapies carry high discontinuation rates from side effects and that under 50% of patients achieve 5% or greater body weight reduction. There are other weight loss agents that are marketed in some countries but are not available in Europe, including lorcaserin, naltrexone bupropion and fentamine topiramate. The third intervention we'll discuss today is metabolic surgery. Originally designed to treat obesity and known as bariatric surgery, this describes a range of surgical interventions to the gastrointestinal system that augment digestion and or the absorption of food, including gastric bands, Rouen-Y gastric bypass, and sleeve gastrectomy, among others. These surgical techniques are associated with significant weight loss, which was originally thought to be purely due to the restrictive and or malabsorptive environment created post-surgery, making it uncomfortable or ineffective to eat food in large quantities. However, surgery such as the Rouen-Y gastric bypass was found to result in rapid normalization of blood glucose levels in obese people with type 2 diabetes, identified in Paul Rees et al.'s influential article published in 1995. This effect was later shown to be independent of weight, and as a result, some surgery of this kind is now used to treat type 2 diabetes without obesity. Where surgery is used in type 2 diabetes, it is now known as metabolic surgery to reflect its broader effects rather than those just on weight. The 2018 ADA ESD guidelines also note that metabolic surgery should be considered as a treatment option in people with a BMI above 40, or for those with a BMI above 35 who are unable to achieve significant, sustained weight loss through non-surgical strategies. These thresholds are lowered for people of Asian ancestry to 37.5 and 32.5 kg per meter squared, respectively. It has since been hypothesized that the effects of metabolic surgery are mediated by a constellation of factors following surgery, as described by Batterham and Cummings in their 2016 review, including nutrient sensing in the gastrointestinal tract, the intestinal microbiome, and incretin secretion. Some of these are being investigated as potential treatment targets in their own right, such as GOP, a combination of GLP-1, oxintomodulin, and peptide YY, hormones which are secreted postprandially at an increased rate following Rouen-Y bypass. Bahari et al. demonstrated in 2019 that, in patients with diabetes and obesity, continuous subcutaneous infusion with GOP for 28 days resulted in superior glucose tolerance compared with both Rouen-Y gastric bypass and a very low-calorie diet. 
Although evidence-based treatments are available for reducing body weight and diabetes, these won't suit every patient and cannot be given as a one-size-fits-all solution. So how can we match weight management strategies to patients that would benefit? Joining us this week is Professor Carol LaRue, Consultant in Metabolic Medicine at Imperial College London and Chair of Experimental Pathology at University College Dublin. Welcome to the podcast, Professor LaRue. So today's first question, in your opinion, what do you think are the biggest barriers to achieving weight loss through lifestyle intervention in the treatment of type 2 diabetes? So for patients with type 2 diabetes who are attempting a lifestyle approach for weight loss, the largest challenges is that they don't know whether or not they will respond to the specific lifestyle intervention. What we see now is that there are responders and non-responders, and that this is driven by biology and not the patient's motivation Um, And that makes it rather difficult. So we can have some of the most motivated patients that really understand what we're trying to achieve. But if they don't have a biological response to our lifestyle change, then they won't be successful. And typically what happens, they will then blame themselves and or blame the lifestyle intervention, where in fact it was just the biology that did not work on this occasion. This also means that we shouldn't Um, hold our lifestyle interventions back. We should try it on as many patients as we can because even somebody that may not appear motivated to us may have a biological response. So all that we require is for the patient to be compliant with that lifestyle intervention. So the biggest challenge we have is not having a blood test or not having a questionnaire that can help the patient Um, to identify the patient, whether or not they will respond to the treatment. So the way we approach it is to say to the patient that we will have a diagnostic phase. We will try the lifestyle intervention. And if the diagnosis is positive, which typically we can achieve after about three months, then we will continue the treatment in the long term. However, if the diagnosis is negative, so they're not responding to the treatment, then we will stop that treatment and try something else. Um, And that remains something that's tricky to explain to patients, but once they understand that, um, it is really so much more effective to use this treatment. Wonderful, thank you. And when would you consider introducing a pharmacotherapy to support a patient in normalizing their body weight? And what factors would you consider when deciding which therapeutic to use? So the decision to start any intervention, including a pharmaceutical agent, and the decision about which pharmaceutical agent to use is, again, very difficult to predict because we don't have a blood test or a questionnaire that can tell us which patients will respond and at what time in the treatment paradigm they will respond. So our approach is to offer all the treatment to patients. So in this case, we have three pharmacological agents to our disposal. We have Orlistat, we have Liraglutide, and we have Mysimba. All of those treatments have randomized controlled data in patients with type 2 diabetes. So we know these treatments work but we don't know to which patients they will work. So what we do for our patients is we offer all three the options and we offer to them in equipoise. Um, We explain the risks and the benefits of the treatments and we ask the patient 
to decide which of the treatments they would like to start first, knowing full well that they may not respond to the treatment they start with first. And we ask the patients to remain open-minded and to allow us after three months on therapy to move on to the next treatment if it doesn't work. The benefit of that is that the patients don't put all their stock into one treatment, but rather what they would like to do um, is to understand that they can move through all the treatments and that they are equally valid. Now, there are certain advantages and disadvantages of the specific medication. So, for example, with loraglutide, we have advantages on hemoglobin A1C, on glycemic control beyond weight loss, where the other treatments, um, we actually see the benefits predominantly only with weight loss. Um, so that may sometimes skew our decision where to start with when it comes to patients with diabetes. And finally, price is also a very important uh, point because for patients with diabetes, uh, we have the treatments such as loraglutide and often Orlistat that is covered um, by public payers where my Simba may not be covered. Um, and that may also influence our decision. Marvellous. Thank you for a very detailed response. On that note, you discussed these three options for obesity management with reference to their use in diabetes. How would these therapies potentially interact with antihyperglycemic agents? For example, if a patient is already receiving an SGLT2 inhibitor, would that influence the choice of these different pharmacotherapies? So if we have a patient where we already are treating their type 2 diabetes with pharmacotherapy, um, then we can be reassured that all of the treatments that also have weight loss as a primary objective, for example, Orlistat, Loraglutide, or also um, Mysimba, will have a positive interaction. So there's no negative interaction with any of the other treatments, with the exception that if we have people on sulfonylureas, we would typically reduce the dose of the sulfonylurea or insulin in that case um, to reduce patients developing hypoglycemia if we are starting a treatment that could significantly improve glycemic control. So there's no contraindications for any of those therapies um, that I mentioned. Um, and more to the point, it works in a beneficial and synergistic way with other medications for diabetes. Excellent. Thank you. Finally, recent guidelines recommend metabolic surgery for those patients with a BMI above 40 or above 35 who are unable to achieve weight loss through non-surgical strategies. What advice do you have for our listeners about discussing metabolic surgery with patients that meet these criteria? I think metabolic surgery for patients with type 2 diabetes is an incredibly valuable tool and probably an underused tool. And I would like us as diabetologists to think of metabolic surgery as our tool that we can use in conjunction with our surgical colleagues. Now, I would use metabolic surgery according to the American Diabetes Association uh, criteria, which would suggest that if somebody has a BMI above 40 with type 2 diabetes, that we should definitely recommend a metabolic surgery for those patients because they will not only have glycemic benefit, but they will also have significant benefit when it comes to other obesity-related complications. For patients with a body mass index above 35, we would recommend, again, um, metabolic surgery in those patients with poor 
metabolic control. But in those patients that have good metabolic control with a BMI over 35, we can consider a metabolic surgery. So it's the difference between recommending it and considering it. But even for those patients with a body mass index above 30, so 3-0, we would consider metabolic surgery in those patients who have poor metabolic control despite our best medical efforts, where in those patients that have good metabolic control, uh, metabolic surgery is not indicated if they have a BMI between 30 and 35. Um, so I think metabolic surgery um, is a treatment that works together with our medications and not in spite of or stop our medications. It actually enhances the benefit that we can get from statins, from ACE inhibitors, from glycemic um, medications such as metformin. Um, so it really is an option that I think is underused and that can have a significant benefit, as has been shown by 12 randomized controlled trials. Um, that has superiority about a medicine-only approach. So in, in summary, I would say it's not surgery against medicine, it's surgery with medicine that's going to enhance the treatment of our patients. I see, thank you. But looking specifically at those conversations to have with patients, how do you broach the topic of metabolic surgery or indeed discuss it as an option alongside these other treatments? So when we talk to our patients with type 2 diabetes, we offer all the treatment options to them, lifestyle, medication, and surgery. And we speak to patients about these options up front. And very often patients will say to us, you know, I do not want to consider surgery. And we would say that is absolutely okay, but I would like you to keep it in your back of your mind because it may be an option that we may want to use down the line. So please continue reading about it. Please ask us as much as you want, um, because I do not want you to discard any treatment options that can improve your metabolic control, improve your quality of life, and hopefully also uh, reduce your mortality. So the reason we do that is to allow patients to have a longer time to consider it rather than spring it, springing it on them right at the end when they want to maybe consider insulin therapy or when they have really poor control. Because people need to have time to consider the options, read about it, find out about it. And we see that actually more patients are willing to undertake metabolic surgery if it's offered in this environment. Thank you so much for your time today, Professor LaRue. This brings us to the end of today's episode. In summary, reductions in body weight of at least 5% can significantly improve outcomes in type 2 diabetes and sometimes even lead to a state of remission. Lifestyle interventions are the first-line treatment and can be effective, but patients can be met with significant barriers to success with these methods. Some pharmacological therapies offer weight loss benefits that can support patients in achieving their goals, and metabolic surgery can be a very effective option in patients at a higher baseline BMI. As we discussed earlier, all references and guidelines discussed in today's episode are available in the episode description. We'd also love to hear from you, so if you have any questions or comments about today's episode, please tweet us at DKI Practice. If you haven't done so already, consider subscribing to this podcast on your favorite app or recommend us to your colleagues. You can also access all of our free accredited CME content at knowledgeandpractice.eu. Thanks for listening. Join us again in two weeks for a special case study episode. We'll be exploring how guidelines apply to real-world situations with a discussion of theoretical cases.